We're going to read Psalm 98, which is found on page 426 in your pew Bible. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst in a jubilant song with music. Make the music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of a ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. This morning is the fifth sermon in a seven-part series that Dr. Barnett has been leading us in. I hope that you've taken time or will take time as you leave the worship space uh, today to uh, take note of the piece of pottery. Uh, Each week, that broken piece of pottery has been um, coming back together and will be completed on Easter Sunday, reminding us that uh, that which is broken will be made whole. Uh, The prayers that we have heard up until this morning have been a prayer of confession a prayer of seeking, a prayer of thirst, and a prayer of rest. And this morning, we kind of switch gears a little bit. We remain in the Psalms, as we have been throughout this series, and will. Uh, But this morning's prayer is prayer for the world. So the first four weeks were a little more internal. uh, Confession, seeking, thirst, and rest. And today we're talking about prayer for the world. Let's begin by asking, what is prayer for the world not? It is not my prayer. It is not even our prayer because our prayer for the world, if it originates within us, would be like any other prayer that originates from within us. It would be motivated for us. It would be a prayer that was For the world, only insofar as the world is for us. My prayers, my utmost concerns, when born out of my own heart, will always seek to serve me. That which begins with me will end with me and will be permeated all the way through with me. No matter how much theology I attempt to sprinkle on top, they are prayers that are raw in the middle, unfinished unfit to be served. It reminds me of a scene in one of my favorite movies, Groundhog Day, with Bill Murray, where he's repeating the same day over and over and over. And so the first night, he's at the bar trying to woo one of his co-workers, and when they get their drinks, he says something goofy, just kind of haphazardly like, to the groundhog, and she kind of rolls her eyes. So the next night, he says, um, I like to have a moment of silence and say a prayer for world peace. Amen. We have to ask, 
what are we praying for and whom are we trying to serve? The question we seek to answer this morning is not as what, what is our prayer for the world, but what is God's prayer for the world? What is, what is God's will for the world? And once we discover that prayer that originates from within His heart, then and only then will we know our prayer for the world. And so today we approach the text, Psalm 98, with this question, what is God's prayer for the world and how might we live out this prayer? And first, let's establish the psalmist emphasis for the world. If you have your Bibles, um, I invite you to look along with me in Psalm 98. Again, it was page 426 there in the Pew Bible. Is this psalm talking about the world? Is God for the world? Is the world at large on his mind and in his heart? I think this psalm will tell us that it is. Verse 2 says, The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Verse 3 says, All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Verse 4, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Verse 7, let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And the last verse, verse 9 says, let them sing before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's with equity. Our God has chosen for himself a particular people. He calls us into relationship with himself, but not to the neglect of the world at large. God's heart is for this entire world, for his entire creation. We also see in Psalm 98 that there's the centrality of worship we, we, we need not concern ourselves with what is the prayer for the world until we see that worship has something very important to do first with this prayer. Look at this psalm if we begin to single out the elements of worship. Verse 1, sing a new song. Verse 4, shout to the Lord, break out in praise and sing for joy. Verse 5, sing your praise to the Lord. Some translations in verse 6 say... Make a joyful symphony before the Lord. In verse 7, let everything shout His praise. Uh, And it lists even beyond people, which when we talk about worshipers of God, we're certainly normally thinking about people. But Psalm 98 and its sister psalm, Psalm 96, tell us that the whole earth is ringing with this praise for its Creator. Uh, The mountains sing and the rivers clap and... Uh, Psalm 96 says, The trees of the forest will sing for joy. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. So it's not just about my worship. It's not just about your worship. It's that the Creator has a creation that its only proper place is to adore God, to adore uh, its King. So we see before we move out and begin to wonder what is it that we ought to pray for the world, We come before God and we desire to encounter God and experience God. We want to find out what is His prayer for the world. In worship, we find out 
how it is that we ought to feel about the world. Well, why is this so? Why should worship be the foundation of our prayer for the world? Mark Laberton uh, wrote a book some years ago entitled The Dangerous Act of Worship, uh, subtitled Living God's Call to Justice. Uh, at the time, Laberton was the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, and he's now the president of Fuller Seminary. I want to share several quotes uh, in this book, because these are, these are maybe two words that we might not put in close proximity to one another, worship and danger. Uh, probably when you discuss with your family whether you're coming to worship uh, or, or looking back at worship and, and talking to your children about it, it's unlikely that the word danger would come up. So what is Laberton talking about? Here's a couple of quotes from his book. He says, Worship turns out to be the dangerous act of waking up to God and to the purposes of God in the world and then living lives that actually show it. And he also says these six words, which I think are pretty profound. Our mission depends on our worship. Our mission depends on our worship. And lastly, he says, a vigorous theology of worship that encounters the living God of heaven and earth is never escapist. It's never about forgetting the neighbor, not least the neighbor who is blind and poor or oppressed and hungry. Genuine worship of the living God moves us, and it moves us toward the world. We call this movement toward the world missions. We could take many, many characters in Scripture and begin to look at their experience with God, some moment, some theophany, some revelation, and then ask, was that something that made their lives easier? improve their quality of life? Or is it something that actually placed them in danger? We could take Moses. The Moses had lived a pretty interesting, extraordinary life. But we find him at one point, he's a shepherd. That's rather not extraordinary. And he's tending the sheep. He's just another person until he comes across one day while he's out, as Pastor Ralph Garth said, uh, Richard Gilmer reminded me that Pastor Ralph says he was minding his own business. Moses was minding his own business, and he sees this bush that is burning. And it's an odd sight, and so he goes over to it and, of course, has the, the inter, interaction, the dialogue with God that, that we're all probably familiar with. But that was not an invitation and if we had asked Moses maybe the day before that experience, like, Moses, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I mean, where are you trying to get? He probably would have said, well, you know, I want to be a better shepherd. I mean, I want to increase productivity, you know, in, in shepherding or whatever and set some goals. He, 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 it was nowhere on his radar that God would call him to, to go back to Egypt, a place of danger for him, and stand toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, the mightiest man known in the world, and tell him, God says, let my people go. And then with his staff to work all these signs and plagues and wonders, uh, danger to lead those people out with the 
chariots pursuing them, being stuck in between the Red Sea and an advancing army, crossing the Red Sea, being in the wilderness, depending on God completely for their daily bread. We just prayed in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. I mean, they prayed that and meant it, like we need to eat. Our stomachs are hurting. Moses, did you bring us out here in the wilderness so that we would die? We were better off back in Egypt, and they, they wanted to kill Moses. I mean, th- this is not easy, fun stuff. Danger coming out of that worship experience. Genuine worship of the living God moves us, and it moves us toward the world. John Mott says, The missionary church is a praying church. The history of missions is a history of prayer. Everything vital to the success of the world's evangelization hinges on prayer. Are thousands of missionaries and tens of thousands of native workers needed? And then he answers his own question with Scripture that says, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he send forth laborers into his harvest field. Samuel Zwimmer says, The history of missions is the history of answered prayer. It is the key to the whole mission problem. All human means are secondary. And A.B. Simpson says, Prayer is the mighty engine that is to move the missionary work. Prayer is the engine that moves the missionary work. There's a chart that I want us to take a look at. Bear with me a little bit. Uh, I'll try to explain what, what, what this is here. I sent an email to a number of our mission team leaders earlier in the week and told them that we were preaching on Psalm 98 this week. We would be discussing it, and I was feeling like uh, an important part of this message needed to be uh, missions, that, that Brookwood's prayer for the world cannot be separated from missions, our going to the world. And that, that made me begin to think about the difference between a missional church and, and we might call it a disengaged church. So we have two, two large columns here, missional church on the left and disengaged church on the right. Most of the time when you and I talk about churches, whether it's like a successful church, uh, one of the first things we say is, well, you know, what, what's, what's their number? I mean, how, how many people do they have in worship on a Sunday morning? And that is one of the first means by which we kind of gauge whether it's, you know, a successful church or not. Well, the point of this, of this chart is basically to, to look at the kingdom impact from God's point of view when he looks down at a, a congregation. Is, in his mind, is, is first and foremost, is it like how many people are in that building at a given time? Or is there a larger understanding of a successful church? On the left-hand column, I'm using a smaller size church, like Brookwood, say 250 in worship, the local worship top line across there. And I'm kind of comparing this to, say, a disengaged church that happens to be 10 times larger. In no way am I suggesting that bigger churches are not missional. That's not true. There are little churches that are missional, and there are also little churches that are disengaged. There are big churches that are missional, and there are big churches that are disengaged. But I'm hoping to draw a contrast here between a smaller church that is sending out into the world, uh, making disciples. When we look at worshipers, we might have 250 here on any given Sunday morning or 300, whatever it might be. But because of the work of this congregation in sending mission teams to South Africa, 
to Mongolia, to Kenya, to Central America, to South America, wherever all the different mission teams have been. And these numbers, I will just say, they're, they're very conservative. These numbers are not embellished at all. These, these, the actual numbers are probably much larger than this. There might be 250 of us here, but because of the missions work, there, there are 10,000 or more people across the globe who are Christians who are worshiping because of the missionary works of this congregation. So even if, if, if you were to have 2,500, 10 times more, but they were not a going, sending missionary church that was sharing the good news with the world at large, then all of a sudden we begin to see maybe the kingdom impact is one-sided, but not in the way that we thought it was. Disciple-making. Uh, if, and, and I think that Brookwood did a, did a survey in, in the last 12 or 18 months uh, that a very high percentage of Brookwood members are engaged in missions, whether it be local or regional or international. Other churches that we partner with, very conservative estimate, but there have been 500 and probably way more people that you have partnered with to actually go do missions. Uh, and so you're kind of, and, and I would say an important part of being a disciple is the spiritual formation piece of actually engaging and serving God. So church plants, again, a conservative number uh, 25 globally, this church has been hands-on directly helping uh, plant churches in different parts of the world. Care for the poor. Locally, there are people who go to firehouse shelter and serve meals and do, do, go to Empower and do literacy classes and other things. But when we talk about care for the poor, literacy, medical, food. Locally, we're touching hundreds of people. That may be in the thousands even locally. But 30,000 is, again, a conservative estimate for numbers of people in the world that this congregation has directly touched through medical missions and other uh, types of ministry. Financial investment, our missions budget uh, is, is right around $325,000. If you take that over a 25-year span, that's over $8 million. And that doesn't count lots of money that, that many of you have put in outside of the missions budget. That's what we do as a, as a congregation for missions. Influencing cultures. Uh, and I know this is kind of like trying to quantify the inquantifiable a little bit, but I just want us to see that regardless of your size on a given Sunday morning, your, glo- your global impact for the kingdom of God can be just incredible. Uh, we, we're talking about the folks that go to Mongolia and work with uh, the military there and do training with them through that partnership. Um, influencing the culture. They may not be over there building a physical church, but, but they're impacting the culture and, and, and spreading the gospel. So you've got all that on the left-hand side, and just, just to say on the right-hand side, even if you have a huge Sunday morning attendance, if you're not sending, and many of those churches are, and that's great, but if you're not sending, then, then the kind of the circular uh, pattern of the arrows there is that if you're not making disciples and you're not caring for the poor and you're not planting churches then really, what is the worship about of the 2,500? What, what, what is it about if it's not touching the world in any of these ways? Um, one of the emails that I received back from uh, the mission team that has just come back from Guatemala, uh, some of the remarks in this email I want to share with you. It says, Our Guatemala mission exposed us to so much heartbreak regarding sexually abused young teenage girls. 
and they talked about two new teenage girls that had just arrived at the home. Uh, And it says one is a 13-year-old mom to a three-month-old boy, and her 14-year-old sister is expecting a child any day. Uh, What does the gospel have to say in a situation like that to these young girls who have now been placed in a home for their own protection and well-being and safety and certainly for that of the babies. Does, does Jesus have something to say in that context to those girls? Our prayer for the world is a prayer of light for a world of, of such darkness. Our prayer for the world is a prayer of healing for a world of such brokenness. Yes, the gospel has everything to say in that context. I don't know what there is to say outside the gospel, quite honestly. Listen to what these ladies went on to share in their email. It says, I thought about the prayer for the world based on our trip to this particular part of the world. It says, our prayer is that the children and young people of Guatemala will be loved and cared for as Jesus taught which was to care for the least of these. For that to happen, hearts must be transformed by the gospel so that children and young people will be valued because they're made in the image of God. The local churches need prayer and support so they can be salt and light. Also, prayers for leaders in the country to be willing to address the challenging issues that keep families in the desperate cycle of poverty. Uh, It makes me very, very proud to be... a part of the family here at Brookwood, when I begin to think about, from a global perspective, the kingdom impact. You know, you could get together and you could say a little prayer in your worship service. You could pray for, you know, Haiti. You could pray for anywhere in the world. But, but this congregation has a rich history of actually engaging and going. And it's a remarkable, a remarkable part of Brookwood's DNA. Uh, we could take the number, of, the number of churches that Builders for Christ has constructed, people who are sitting in buildings right now as we worship, who are sitting in buildings that, that you have gone and helped construct. That would be a huge number as well. So touching a lot of people in different ways. I find those numbers uh, encouraging and challenging. Uh, we're going to be having, uh, in just a few weeks, April 30th, we'll recognize the college graduates, and that afternoon we'll be having a college missions luncheon, and there'll be representatives from many of the different ministries and mission teams who will be there that day just to share uh, with our college students all that's going on. So many places to plug in, uh, so many places to, to put their hands uh, to the plow and work, and just incredible opportunities um, with that. One of the other amazing parts of Psalm 98 that I want us to see this morning is uh, the victory, the salvation uh, that God works for the world. The Hebrew word is yasha in verse 1. It's a verb, to save, to be saved, to be delivered. But in verses 2 and 3, uh, it changes to the passive participle of yasha, Yeshua, something that was saved. Uh, of course, uh, that is uh, connected to the Old Testament Hebrew name of Joshua and the New Testament English translation of 
Jesus, the one who saves. God is a God of victory. He's a God of salvation. And it's not a secret salvation. Uh, One of the early heresies in Christianity was Gnosticism, where they believed that they had a special little piece of knowledge that, that somebody else didn't have. So if I felt like I understood this particular point about Jesus or about the faith, and you didn't get it, then I was a real Christian and you weren't. That was Gnosticism, this kind of special knowledge. Um, I don't think we see that in Scripture. I think that we see that God is a God of revelation. If we look at verses 1, 2, and 3, in all three of those verses, it says that, uh, that God reveals Himself. He shows Himself. He announces His victory, His salvation. He reveals it. The world has seen His salvation. And we've seen that which God has saved us. How, it, how, is the, how are the works of God connected to the character of God? Also, in all three of those verses, we see that who God is is connected to what He's doing. It's a mighty victory that He has. It's done by His holy arm, verse 1. Verse 2, it talks about His victory, salvation, God's righteousness. Verse 3, the victory, uh, his promise to love and be faithful. We cannot separate these two. Uh, Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, says this, Eventually, the whole of creation will join in the joy and thanksgiving that will accompany the, the Lord when he comes as king to put all things right. Uh, and then Johnny Dupree's a professor at Stellenbosch University in South Africa, says, According to Psalm 96... The particular eschatological aspect of God's work that calls for special praise from the side of all creatures is the announcement that He comes to judge in righteousness and truth. We associate God's judgment with all manner of dread expectations, yet His judgment does not consist only in calling His opponents to account. It may also be thought of with joyful anticipation for everything that is now in disarray and disharmony, suffering from injustice and violence, shall be set right." This is the broader aspect of the judgment which Old Testament saints embraced and in which they rejoice. God does not reign in a tyrannical way or through terror. His reign breathes tenderness and joy. In a glorious way, Psalm 96 and its twin, Psalm 98, remind the believing community that God's purpose with creation is nothing less than a new heaven and a new earth in which justice will be at home. C.S. Lewis even goes a step farther and says... You know, when you and I hear that word judgment, sometimes we kind of begin to feel a little angst, a little like, oh, judgment's not good, that's bad, going to get it. But look at the song. Verse 9, it says that everybody should sing and praise God, enjoy the whole creation, everybody, all the world, all the nations. Four, three little letters. We should praise Him for He comes to judge the earth. That doesn't sound like something that should get us all riled up to sing His praises. He comes as a judge who is righteous, and He'll judge the peoples with equity. C.S. Lewis says we we cringe a bit when we hear that, but we need to understand that in in the Hebrew world and, and the Jewish people, they were longing for judgment because... 
they felt as though they had been oppressed. And if God was a God of righteousness, He was going to come and set things right. And those who had been oppressed would be lifted up. It would be a good thing. That's a challenging thing for us. If we automatically associate judgment with condemnation, don't we want to identify with those who are being oppressed so that judgment in righteousness is something to be longed for and celebrated? In closing, I'm going to share just a couple of quick quotes with you about the connection between worship and missions as prayer for the world. William Law says, There is nothing that makes us love a man so much as praying for him. Roland Allen said, Christ had given the apostles a worldwide commission, embracing all the nations, but intellectually they did not understand what he meant. They found that out as they followed the impulse of the Spirit. And Henry Martin says, the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Him, the more intensely missionary we become. Are we praying for the world? Are we going to the world? May God's love for the world and His love for justice permeate our prayer for the world. A prayer celebrating the joy of Christ's salvation, the victorious King, the righteous Savior. A prayer that causes us to move toward the world, neighbors near and far. A prayer born out of our worship. A prayer for all people. A prayer of missions. This morning, as we close in prayer, I want to just have a few moments of silence and just invite you to pray silently right where you are for the world just to pray for the nations that, that God, that the gospel would continue to go forward and that God would be glorified in all the earth. Would you pray with me? God forbid that we would have an increased interest in missions or more work for missions or better success in organizing them or even better finances apart from prayer. May prayer and your gracious answering of it provide growth in our spiritual lives. Make our love for Christ a joyous love that must be shared. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.